0: Welcome to the Exit Stage Left, of the Berlin Youth Theatre 50th Year Oral History Project, funded by the Heritage Lottery. We're thrilled to take you on a journey through time as we celebrate the incredible legacy of Berlin Youth Theatre. In this special podcast series, we delve deep into the heart of BYT's rich history, revealing the stories, experiences, and memories that have made this youth theatre an enduring force for the past five decades. Our second season is all about reflections, revelations and reminiscences. We'll be unlocking the vault of memories, anecdotes and tales shared by those who have graced BYT's stage and backstage, both young and old. These voices you'll hear aren't just storytellers, they're the keepers of living history, the very essence of what Berlin Youth Theatre has meant to the community over the years. From auditions that made hearts race, to backstage secrets that seldom left the dressing room, from the echoes of laughter during rehearsals, to standing ovations on opening nights, we're here to celebrate the magic of BYT. So sit back, relax and get ready for an unforgettable journey through Burnley Youth Theatre's 50 years of captivating stories, all made possible by the generous support of the Heritage Lottery.
1: So it's funny we've stopped there because this is the point that I wanted to to ask you about was when you came back
0: to Burnley and the creation of Lock, Stock, and Barrel.
1: Yes, uh, and this is you know the the next phase of my, not just my career but I think the next kind of stage when Burnley Youth Theatre moved on. So. I returned from university in 1984, uh, that summer, and I brought with me three fellow graduates who I convinced it would be a good idea <laughs> because none of us had jobs. Um, you know, you come out of university, you're looking for that first job, and I said, why don't we form a theatre company? Why don't you come to Burnley with me? So I convinced these three friends of mine from university. We were all at Breton Hall, Um, together, which I'll tell you a little about uh, in a minute. Um, And that time when we all came to Burnley coincided when the council appointed his first arts and entertainments officer, who was Alan Daiches, who is also another important individual in the youth theatre story. Um, You know, and, you know, he's another of those kind of people that kind of... Nudged the youth theatre story along a bit, like Andrew Walker and the site and all the stuff that got done with the site. Um, and so uh, Alan Daiches was appointed around right about the same time, about 1984. And of course, his job was to refurbish the Burnley Mechanics Theatre, which opened in um, 1986, uh, which was a you know a really big thing for the town and the arts in general and. Gosh, there was so much more money about there and so much more will um, Mm -hmm. to, you know, up the cultural opportunities in the town. I mean, you know, there was never a better time, really. Um, uh, And, you know, a big memory just moving on a couple of years, that opening of the Mechanics in 86, um, you know, one big memory. I got a personal introduction to Her Majesty the Queen. Oh, uh, as part of that visit, you know, I got to speak to her, I got to shake her hand, I got, you know, um, you don't forget stuff like that. So, um, Lock, Stock and Barrel Community Theatre, and we were, we called ourselves Community Theatre on purpose because we always started out with the intention, we weren't just going to be a theatre company, you know, um, performing plays and touring them out. We, I always had that interest in, you know giving back to communities and the training and the workshop element and the other stuff so it was always wrapped in uh, from the very start so me and my three fellow graduates not only did I convince them to come to Burnley I convinced them to live in the caravans <laughs> on the side on
0: the side. <laughs> on
1: the side which you know wasn't easy I've got to say, I mean, it was always helpful when your mum lived up the road because we could, we'd could we have a bit of rest bag. we could go there and have a shower and do all that kind of stuff that you needed to do outside of the caravan, you know. Um, so we set up this theatre company and it also would not have been possible without a scheme that was available through the government at that time called the Enterprise Allowance Scheme. And when you set up a small business... Um, you registered it with the job centre, and you were given a kind of business mentor. And <clears throat> when I went down and said, "It's a theatre company. What mentor have you got?" We strugg- struggled a bit. I, and I remember we we had a guy mentoring our business. His background was shoe manufacturing. Oh, uh, you know, really helpful. <laughs> um, but anyway, the good thing about the scheme was everybody in your business got forty pound a week from the government. So there were four of us that were £160 a week. I know that sounds like nothing these days, mm-hmm. but back in those days, you know, that kept our rentable water. water. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we negotiated um, with Mick Dawson at the time to be on the site. We sort of became the theatre company in residence on the site and in return for being able to rehearse in the buildings and do our other stuff we gave back free workshops and training stuff. And I suppose that was the start of, you know, like, I suppose, you know, professionals doing workshops, really, for the youth theatre. And um, that was probably, you know, the next stage of youth theatre's development. We did a couple of touring shows as Lop, Stock and Barrel. We did um, uh, A Christmas Carol, which was probably the first professional show Performed in that building, so I suppose that's another first. And we had we had another one called Michael Wright's home that we toured out, and we did some other Christmas show about a Christmas pudding. But I can't, I can't, I can't for the life of remember what that one was about either. But anyway, the four original members, um, we were only really together for about a year or so, and then you know things fell apart for reasons that I don't want to go into. Um, Fair enough. but but two of us carried on, myself and Gillian Longdon. So we carried on. So it was just two of us being Lot, Stock and Barrel. Um, we couldn't really do shows because there were only two of us. Um, mm-hmm. But we continued to do training and educational workshops and the like. Um, but um, just before that happened, I should mention that the one show that the four of us did with the youth theatre was the outdoor production of Jason and the Argonauts, which I think a lot of people, again, reflect back to me and say, oh, you know, we so enjoyed doing that and it was great, you know. So it's another big, memorable uh, production. Um, And just to say a little bit about Bretton Hall and my background and I suppose why why I am the person I am and why I did what I did and my kind of ethos... Um, Bretton Hall had a real it's part of Leeds University it's actually not there anymore but it had a real reputation for improvisation and devising um, so not a tri- typical drama degree it doesn't really produce actors although it has um, but a strong emphasis on improvisation um, interestingly some of the famous alumni of Bretton Hall are Kay Meller who is the TV writer, who, this is a very strange coincidence, ended up writing with Paul Abbott. The two of them teamed up together and wrote some things in later years. But other people on my course at the time was Mark Thomas, the comedian. He's very much a political comedian. He was a good friend of mine at university. So it produced people like that. And in later years, the League of Gentlemen, so people like Mark Gattis and Steve Pemberton are all Bretton Hall, graduates so I mean let's face it you know those two people I've just mentioned you know they're noted not just for their acting no, you know no. they write and devise stuff don't they mm-hmm. so I think you know Bretton had a strong reputation for that the head of drama there John Hodgson um wrote the seminal book for all drama students uh, called improvisation um and it's still around today and still everybody reads it and one of the lecturers uh there also wrote the book on Mike Lee's processors. So that's the kind of background I was uh, brought, brought up on. Um, so I kind of always saw myself as a bit of an improvisation devising specialist. And I think that's what I brought back to the youth theatre with my fellow graduates and Lockstock and yes. barrel. Um, and in later years, through my Lockstock and barrel bit, I got the chance to work with somebody called Dorothy Heathcote, who also wrote another seminal book called Drama as a Learning Medium, which is about how you use drama in educational settings to um, improve uh, children's uh, literacy and uh, inquisitiveness and uh, all of that. And um, that, was a fan- that was another fantastic moment for me in moving my craft on. I got to work with the Duke's uh, Playhouse, Lancaster Theatre and Education team at the time, and Dorothy Hethkorn. We worked in um, museums and heritage settings. Um, And with lots stuck and barrel as well, just myself and Gillian to start with. um, I mean, we just take every opportunity. I was working in young offenders institutions and uh, adult psychiatric units. And I mean, you name it, I've worked in it. and you kind of learn as you go along, you know mm-hmm. you do you you learn by doing it, but I think all of that broadened my outlook of what was possible also for the youth theater, yeah, so all of that, the opening of the mechanics, the lock mm-hmm. Stock and barrel presence, that all moved the youth theater onto its um next stage of development. And I think Alan Dachess um, was a great mentor for me. And I was doing my lock, stock and barrel thing. I was doing my youth theatre workshops and directing with Gillian. But then he, cre- uh, Alan created a community arts team for the first time in Burnley. And Gillian and I were appointed as two part-time workers based at the mechanics for about 12 <laughs> hours a week, working for the mechanics Because Alan really understood the importance of education and outreach work and how that fed into the mechanics, you know, functioning as a good cultural venue. He saw it as an art centre, not as a theatre. And he understood what it meant to be a civic art centre and that roundedness. And there was a coming together of what we did as Lock, Stock and Barrel in our... uh, freelance capacity, what we did at the youth theatre and what we did for the mechanics. Mm -hmm. uh, It all kind of came together and it was difficult to tease out when we were doing one and when we were doing another, really. Uh, And there was kind of a lot of money to do things with as well. You know, I mean, it was, they were really, really great times. Um, And I I went on then uh, in later years to be the full-time senior community arts worker for the town with a with a team of people and, uh, and then later the arts development manager for the council. And even during all that time, I carried on doing my youth theatre uh, stuff. Yeah. So I was still working as a creative practitioner, but I think I learned a lot of other skills mm-hmm. because when I became arts development manager and all of that, I realised the importance of partnerships and community work and what that could do for the youth theatre. Uh, I learned about programming and funding and planning and policy and strategy. Um, and, you know, Alan mentored me in all of that. Um, I, and I, I realised I was quite good at it. And I think gradually over time, the creative hands-on bit kind of went away. And I realised, oh, I'm quite good at this strategy funding programming bit, which kind of led to the next bit of my career, which I'll tell you a bit about later. Um, but um, so there I was working with Gillian um, in those various roles. Uh, we also became accredited youth workers and worked at Paddyham Youth Centre. My goodness, we were doing it all. Um, and we created some new youth theatres. We had two youth theatres down at the Mechanics and we had a youth theatre at Paddy and Town Hall. And, you know, there'd be like over 100 kids involved in all of them, plus all the youth theatre kids. You know, I just, I just remember seeing hundreds of them every week. Um, so there was a lot going on and we had a big schools programme and it was also a way working in schools to get kids into the youth theatre Kids from the Mechanics Youth Theatre went to the youth theatre. Kids from and went to the youth theatre. You know, so we, there was rapid growth. I mean, mm-hmm. it was just, it just got enormous, really. Um, all that, all those different programmes all feeding into one another.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and the close relationship with the Mechanics as a theatre was really important for the youth theatre because once the Mechanics opened... There was a new big stage. Yeah. And that's when the Youth Theatre started to move some of its productions into the Mechanics Theatre. I think it started with the second West Side Story. There was an an opening show for the Mechanics where we just did a 20-minute something, along with all the other amateur dramatic societies and so on. But the big show was West Side Story number two, I think. Um, and they used to happen in November, but very quickly we realized doing a Christmas show could be a big, could be a big money earning. We had to be very careful not to step on the toes of the pantomime society and not do pantomimes. So we were always very clear, always very clear we did a Christmas show and not a pantomime. Um, and they were massive. I mean, we used to do them in partnership with the mechanics and the mechanics tech team used to build the set for us. So we got lots of kind of freebies as a result, but we would hire the theater for an entire week and we were filling, we were doing 12 performances. We did all the daytimes and uh, we had schools filling it up. We'd be selling 6,000 plus tickets, you know, in a week for the Christmas show. Um, they were big things, you know. And at that time, budgets of five or six grand to spend on the costumes and the set, you know. I mean, they were big things. And actually, the money we made on that, the it used to pay for all the other productions the youth theatre did for the rest of the year. Um, and we used to have oh, the casts were massive. Oh, Fiona, the casts were massive. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm talking fifty plus, maybe as many as seventy or eighty. Um, they 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 were big yeah um so by the late 80s um uh mick dawson had moved on i was asked to take on the artistic direction of the youth theater full-time i still wasn't getting paid for it but we were we were we're starting to pay sessional fees then you get (laughs) you know you get you get 10 quid for doing a rehearsal or you know just a bit of out of pocket expenses yeah um And by that time, we were definitely running two or three workshops every night, every night of the week. Saturday mornings down at the Mechanics Theatre, Sunday afternoons up at the... Friday night was the only night I had off during the week. And I did that for years and years and years. And the Youth Theatre expanded so much, we started to take children down to the age of about seven, I think. So it was seven to twenty-one um we used to call the younger group the light brigade um so we had a sort of we had a sort of juniors middles and seniors you know we used to split them up a bit by age group and I think people paid about 50 pence to come along or in later years it was about a pound and so around about 1988 ish um I got this, I was formally told, you're the artistic director, Anthony. Um, and, you know, then I had sort of t- 10 years, really, doing that. Um, Gillian Longdon moved on after about four or five years. And um, I was still doing, I was still running the lot, stock and barrel business. <laughs> so um, I employed somebody called Heather Barclay, who was another Bretton Hall graduate Um. And so I employed her to carry on with some of the lot of Stock and Browse stuff. And she also worked for the mechanics in the community arts team. So it all kind of continued uh, in a kind of seamless kind of way. Um, and Heather brought extra skills because she was quite qualified in dance. Um, so we also had quite a lot of dance classes and we started to do more dance and movement as part of the uh, offer. Um, And we were certainly doing lots of workshops beyond acting. We used to do directing workshops and technical workshops and all sorts of things that we were doing. And um, a big thing was the summer holiday offer. We'd have a full six weeks um, where the youth theatre was very much involved in it. And just to give you a flavour of what we do over those six weeks we used to do a play scheme touring show every year, which youth theatre members were in. We used to tour it out for three weeks of those six weeks. We'd do scout-ups and cricket pavilions and all sorts of really tiny spaces on these play schemes. And we didn't just do Burnley. We did. We used to be commissioned to do uh, Heimburn and uh, Pendle. I mean, we must have done 15, 20 shows, you know, over the three weeks. And we did it for years all new devised pieces. Um, We used to do murder mysteries. um, And I know Pip will, if he comes to do a podcast with you, will talk a lot about those because we always tend tend to have some kind of Sherlock Holmes character, which he loved playing. um, And they were interactive, immersive murder mysteries and community groups would take part in them and be the detectives. Um, And they were just such great fun. And we did... um, thematic weeks so we'd have like you know egyptian week or viking week and we would we would turn the theatre up on queen's park road into an egyptian pyramid or a, a viking village and kids groups would come in and have you know two hours immersing themselves in a viking village experience or whatever and they do bits of arts of crafts and they do drama and youth theatre older members got the chance to actually become facilitators and leaders and, and act part in that, you know, it was a, you know, it was the chance for them as well to get the skills to be workshop leaders. So there were really important times. Um, and then in the early nineties, um, you know, with so much going on with lots of different people directing things as well, it wasn't just, uh, me and Heather. Um, I think the next big change was Nick Maynard, um, for the life of me, I can't remember how we ever met. But um, he was a Manchester University or Met uh, drama graduate. And anyway, I I got him involved and he became associate director after two or three years of working for us. But Nick and I, uh, we were the ideal team. Can I just say, um, we both came from different backgrounds. Um, in terms of, you know, our drama studies. Um, But we just hit it off so well doing uh, the kind of joint directorial approach. Um, And I'd like to think that that's when New Theatre produced some of its best devised work um, in those kind of early 90s. Um, Nick Nick, uh, got a job as Head of Performing Arts at Blackburn College, but both of us still, you know... Heather was still doing productions, but Nick, we were, there were three of us, really. We were all very good friends. Uh, but Nick and I started to do more and more and more. I mean, we were churning out 12 productions a year, mainly, you know. Um, we were doing a lot. Um, so that that devising work um, led to youth theatre branching out and becoming a little bit more regionally and nationally noticed. Um you know, and there's, there's a few things that, you know, I've just got to mention. We'd built a long relationship with, um, since Julia Bravo, actually, with both Granada and BBC, with the casting units. Mm-hmm. We were on first name terms with, I'd get a phone call, you know, every few weeks from, I can't remember the names, but, you know, whoever it was from Granada or BBC would ring me up and say, we're looking for, you know, four girls age 13. You know, they must look like this. And we regularly had these kind of casting things. Um, and, we, you know, so many kids got opportunities from the youth theatre to get into TV programmes of one sort or another. And one of those opportunities was a little bit different. In the mid-90s, we were approached by Granada, who said, we want to make uh, a programme for religious broadcasting. So, you know, my eyes nearly popped out of my head thinking, why have you approached us for this? Um, you're going to work with this trendy young vicar, and we're going to, uh, we're going to film you in the devising process, and we want you to reinterpret three parables, uh, uh for modern times. So it was called Modern Meanings, um, and it was televised on Granada TV, and uh, we were runners up in the religious broadcasting award for that year, um, you know, and that just came completely out of the blue. Um, but the big one I want to talk about is Nick and I set off on a course to do um, to write. Well, we didn't intend to write three plays, but it ended up being a trilogy of plays. And the first one of those was a long time in gestation, and it started with a relationship with the Brook Advisory Service, uh, which was working with um, vulnerable teenagers, uh, particularly actually young men. Um, in danger of teenage pregnancy. Not themselves in danger of teenage pregnancy, but, you know, being involved in that. Um, And we did a lot of research um, with the Brook Advisory Service with these young men. And out of it came this idea for a play, which we ended up calling Thinking of England. So it was all about pressures of relationships for teenagers. Um, Mm -hmm. It took about two years of you know, researching, devising different formats. Anyway, eventually, Thinking of England came about as a piece, uh, and uh, we entered it for the Lloyds Bank Theatre Challenge, a big competition at the time, and (laughs) we found out that we got selected as one of 12 best new plays um, to be performed at the Olivier Stage at the Royal National Theatre in London. (laughs) Um, And... I just can't tell you what a moment that was. I mean, you know, we all went down on coaches from the youth theatre. Um, it was one performance only. Uh, I remember sitting in the director's box in the National Theatre, you know, weeping tears of joy. I mean, that's oh. all I can say. I mean, you know, you just know you've got somewhere when mm. that happens. It was such a moment, and... um we worked with a great guy from the National Theatre called Jack Murphy, who was their movement director. He came up to Burnley a few times to work with the cast. I remember he came to my house and I cooked him a chilli and I nearly blew his head off. Um, um, And uh, and he was tough with the cast. You know, he was tough. Um, uh, But, you know, that kind of rigour of having outside professionals coming in, it's a kind of yardstick of you know, where you're at and where you might go next. Mm-hmm. And after thinking of England, we were inspired to do more of it, really. <laughs> oh, let's do more of this relevant stuff. Um, so State of the Decay was the second uh, play. Um, we did enter it again, I think, for lloyds Bank Theatre challenge, but we didn't get it through. It was a bit too controversial for them, I think. I've got to say it was highly political, Mm -hmm. Um, we had a lot of feedback on it it was about the racial disturbances in Burnley the first time round it was about a lot of disgruntledness in working white class communities in Burnley probably some of the early days of the birth of the BMP and all of that Uh, what leads young people to think like that Um, Mm -hmm. and you know we had a lot of feedback from community workers and councillors saying oh you can't put this on the stage you know I remember it was it was pretty, common, but we stuck with it. Yeah. We stuck with it. Uh, I think it was a much better piece than Thinking of England. I mean, I really think it, you know, it was cutting edge. It was great. But we did get accepted to the National Student Drama Festival, and it was the 40th year for them in Scarborough. So we took the cast up there, and it was the first time, to my knowledge, that they ever accepted a youth theatre into the NSDF. That wasn't a college or a university, so for me that's a bit of a first.
0: Mm-hmm. We got
1: great reviews, uh, one or two reviews that didn't like it, but in in the main, the reviews were fabulous, and I think I just think it was a great show. And then we produced the third piece called Best of British, which was probably the weaker of the three. Um, I think it was. It kind of was trying to reflect the political climate of the time. Again, we we were getting quite political. Um, We had a Margaret Thatcher in it, um, riding a sort of um, what's the thing from the Bible with the seven heads. Oh oh well that thing anyway yeah um, yeah so anyway margaret thatcher was on it and i remember paula angus who played margaret thatcher i've got to say she did a mean a mean interpretation of margaret thatcher i mean she was so good at it she now lives in australia by the way but her margaret thatcher in it was just fantastic anyway that was that was the third piece um and um we went on then to enter a few other competitions with players after. Some of them were already written pieces. They weren't devised. So we entered the British Telecom's Connections Challenge and went to the Royal Exchange Theatre in Manchester with Snoo Wilson's play, The Bedbug. Bug. Um, and again, I thought it was another great... I thought we did a really good job at it. But I think we rather killed our chances by changing the end of the play and um snoo wilson the writer was there with the judging panel in the royal exchange and we were taken to one side after the show and given a bollocking for basically changing it changing the end of the script without permission and i think yeah it did us in for getting any further i think to the national bit um and we entered the bt well when i'd left later um Nick carried on and he entered another piece for the BT Connections called The Golden Door, I think, some years later. Um, But at that time as well, we were touring all the things out. We went to the Contact Theatre in Manchester with a piece. Uh, We toured down to uh, Kingsland in Norfolk. Um, And every year we used to do the National Youth Arts Festival, which was held in Ilfracombe in Devon. Um, Maybe we did that for about six, seven years, and we took a device piece down every single year. Um, so we were doing lots of that stuff and really putting the youth theatre on the map. I think from that time, people across the country knew who Burnley Youth Theatre were. Mm-hmm. Um, So that's a big bit of the next story, yeah. really. And once we got to about... Uh, mid-90s I remember writing the youth theatre's first artistic policy and strategy so I think that's the first time getting something down on paper and trying to crystallise what is this youth theatre about, what does it stand for what's it here to do so I remember writing that and then working behind the scenes to professionalise it and I applied to the Sports and Arts Foundation at the time, which I think was an offshoot of Littlewoods, the catalogue. It was the Littlewoods family anyway. Um, and got a big chunk of money out of them. So what we did was we decided to appoint an artistic director, a paid post. It wasn't going to be me. And that became Jackie Riddell, now Jackie Hardacre. So... We had enough money with that and some money through the council, through the single regeneration budget, um, to uh, appoint not just jacket, but we had a, somebody to do administration and we had a marketing person. And put a cabin on the site for four or five years. Uh, that's when the youth theatre properly be, had a paid staff and became, you know, something else. Um, I stood down uh, at that time. I, After 12 years of working for the Mechanics, doing a lot of Stock and Barrel, doing the Youth Theatre, um, I applied uh, for a job with Northwest Arts Board uh, in 1998, which later became the Arts Council of England, um, and went off for a new career. And um, that's when I had to disentangle myself a little bit from the Youth Theatre um, for obvious potential conflicts of interest, particularly because during that time, I'd like to think that behind the scenes, I was nudging the then arts board to take notice of this youth theatre that they might fund, but I was never, ever involved in the decision-making around it. I always extricated myself from that. Um, But um, I had uh, 15 years then with uh, the Arts Council in a variety of senior roles of one sort or another. Um, and then my kind of involvement with the theatre stopped for a long while, uh, but my mother was still involved as a volunteer and a trustee and doing the finances, so I always knew what was going on. I was always checking in on uh, what was happening. Um, and then when I left the Arts Council in uh, uh, 2013, um, I was if I wanted to come back as chair of the trustees and I've been involved in that role ever since. So that's the kind of story and the only last things I've got are just a few little memories that I just want to just chuck in as a bit of an afterthought, yeah. really. Um, there's a few productions you kind of, I mean, I've mentioned lots of productions, but there's a few you remember for other things. Lord of the Flies... I remember that because we had a lorry arrived with about two tonnes of sand and we shoveled it into the theatre and the entire stage was made like a beach and it took months to get that sand out again. Um, we did Toda all where we did a similar thing and a lorry arrived from the Parks Department with about two tonnes of leaves. And um, I remember all the animals were hidden under it for 30 minutes while the audience came in and then emerged from the leaves. Um, We did our first commissioned new musical uh, back in the 90s, Pit Brow Lass, Mm -hmm. and I want to mention that because it drew on the stories of the history of the site. Um, In and around the site, the old quarry, there were local mines, so Pit Brow Last is very much about the local mines and um, the story of that. Not in my time, but Jackie Riddle's time, the Spirit production at the Millennium drew on the story of the White Stag, which, interestingly, is a myth and legend related to the Rowley Hall and the family that lived there. So that's another kind of local uh, hook uh, uh, of a production and why that came about. Town and Mystery plays. They were another production that went on forever and ever. We just toured it forever and ever. And it was just great because it was, again, doing something different. We built this platform on wheels that toured around on the back of somebody's estate car, and we took it everywhere. Um, I, I want to mention the prime of Miss Jean Broder, which was a play that yeah. I directed. I want to mention it because Joy Wilkinson, now one of Youth Theatre's honorary patrons and now a celebrated Script writer who's just been in the top ten, by the way, on Netflix for writing a sci-fi series, and writes for, has written for Doctor Who and loads of other stuff. Played Jean Brodie in that, and every time I speak to Joy, I say, "Joy, you were a terrific actress, and that was the best part you ever played." And she always she always blushes and gets embarrassed, but I'm going to mention it. Um, there were just so many productions that you remember for so many reasons. And just thinking about individuals, the youth theatre always had whole families and all their siblings involved. Mm. And you know, uh, families who maybe had you know three, four, five children. There were I don't know there was just a lot of them over the years, and I just remember them. You know, the Siddles, the Goddams, the Lewises, the Allens, the Coopers, the Bradleys. I mean, I've written them down, <laughs> and like all all their kids were involved, all of them, and um, and the parents too. Uh, and there were just so many volunteers. You know, you, you forget, you, you do forget all the volunteers, but there's so many lovely little stories about volunteers. I mean, Jean Gorton, who um uh, had no family, just turned up one day and said, I'd like to volunteer. Um, And, you know, she stuck with the Youth Theatre for years
0: mm. and she
1: used to like running the raffles. She used to knit all the prizes. <laughs> for the, the, Jean Gorton's knitted raffle prizes... <laughs> were infamous. And Kath Stevenson and Linda Hargreaves, who did costumes for years and years and years, um, I mean, they used to get some stick because they used, they'd be in the back room sewing and they had these posters on the wall. One was of Cliff Richard and one was of David Essex because they, they adored them. And I remember the kids used to really take the mickey out of these two posters, you know, and you know, it, it was a running joke. You know, what does Cliff think about that? What does David think about that, Car? You know, these posters were always referred to. Um, um and, and I remember I'm Nick so- and I...
0: I'm sorry, Anthony. I'm going to have to stop you there. Um Because no. we're running
1: out of time. But maybe we could talk again sometime. Well, yeah, I...